our reading and consideration. John chapter 20. By the way, as you're turning to John 20, and so am I, if you haven't yet got a one-year Bible reading program that divides the Bible up chronologically, and not in the order of binding, but in the order of best we can of happening, and schedules it into five, a five-day-a-week reading plan of 52 weeks, I encourage the church to accompany me uh, in this. Um, and uh, these are free. You can go to the Internet and get these, by the way. is a website that actually publishes this, BibleClassMaterial.com. And the beauty is, is that you could do the whole Bible divided in this fashion, or you could do only the New Testament. And if you haven't done the whole Bible, if you've not even done a New Testament, the New Testament might be what you want to do in the course of a year. Or you could do the Psalms. Uh, you could read the Psalms in a year. Uh, or you can read Old Testament Psalms and New Testament. And do it with us. Now, I we've only finished week three. We're beginning week four, and I can say to you, you're not that far behind if you haven't got a copy of this and you'd like to join us. If it feels like you wished you would have got a copy at the first week and you'd like to join us, then what I suggest is just go ahead and start and do the New Testament and Psalms. And uh, it won't take you long to double up and catch up doing the New Testament and Psalms. Uh, you'll be caught up with the whole church. Uh, these are yellow, and Michael's got them there in the lobby if you uh, want one. Uh, Michael, they're on that wall, I believe. If you look straight ahead, you'll see them in the rack. Now, in our Bibles today, we're going to John chapter 20 for our reading. And we're going to begin to read at verse number 19. We're in the life of Christ, event by event, chronologically. And therefore, in the life of Christ, chronologically, we're at the period of resurrection. Verse 19, then, came, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when they had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hand the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were with them, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Let's pray. Bless Almighty God, we pray, the reading of your word to the soul of our understanding. And bless now its meditation, its thought to the adults who gather in this room, to the young people who gather down in the dining room, to all who are engaged in church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And even as I was reading it, I was reminded that John 20, verse 30 and 31 are some memory verses of the church. Do you remember those? Let's say those together, please, without you attempting to look. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of all of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. If you are able to do that without looking, would you put your hand up? All right, I'll tell you, it was shaking for me too. Here's first lesson. If we don't review it, we'll lose it. And uh, we've got to review our memory verses or we will lose them. Nevertheless, God bless you. You did it. And uh, some of you, it was a refresher. You just did your review today. Last time we were together in church, we saw Jesus appear to the uh, earlier set of disciples in Luke 24, after the Emmaus walk. But it says here in John uh, 20 that Thomas was absent. There's a couple of things for us to consider in that, the 11, the 10. We should consider that on another occasion. We certainly can. You know, where was Thomas in Luke 24? How does Thomas appear in John 20? And now he's there with this unbelieving staunch heart. That's a discussion that can happen on another occasion. Another thing that's in my mind that uh, I hesitate to do, but I think it's in the best interest as a whole, is to skip over verses like 23. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. And though I read them and I acknowledge them, I, I'm not ignoring that these are, uh, that's a challenging verse that takes sometimes uh, an extra amount of time to properly understand this verse, particularly because there's a major doctrinal division using this verse right here between Roman Catholicism and historic Protestantism. It's this power of the priesthood to remit sin or absolve sin, or does the power belong and attain to God himself to remit sin, to absolve sin? I do have to say that's a conversation we should have on another occasion, not ignore, but have. And you certainly can research this on your own at our disposal through the internet and smartphones are outstanding Bible tools to research and put together good theology. This isn't something that I'm reinventing. I find it instead more important for us to stay with the passion of the resurrection appearances. And the passion of the resurrection appearances is that the greatest historical event to occur in the history of humankind is this, this idea that a man who died rose again and lived again, never to die again. That's the premise of, of the New Testament. It's where the entire New Testament is going. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foremost message of the first century apostles 
and nothing's changed. In other words, the Christian church, whether it's in America through the local assemblies, or whether it's in traditional uh, Eastern mysticism, China, China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, or, or whether it's in tribal Africa, uh, regardless of where the Christian message is, it's the resurrection of Christ that God was incarnate in flesh, the person of the Christ, lived, died, rose again, never to die again. It's the message of the resurrection. So while sometimes we as a church and even as individuals can become too overly preoccupied with our culture, attempting to reform the culture, can I say to you, the culture cannot be reformed until the eyes are open to the person of Christ. And therefore, what's going on in America as the state of New York and the General Assembly have passed the most sweeping legal legislation for abortion that you can have. I think there's only six nations in the world that have such laws up to a full deliverable baby up to a full deliverable baby. Now here's the thing that's so ironic in all of this is that they lit up the tower of the freedom tower pink. Now even if you thought the old argument that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, I don't know how you can celebrate something that's supposed to be rare as if it's the greatest thing you could have ever done with your life. It should be grieved even if you thought, even if you thought it's the woman's right to choose. It still is an object of grief. But to light up, listen, to light up the tower which is sitting on the edge of a memorial where how many Americans died? And you know in that memorial is inscribed the words of every human being that died there in that spot. And also, I saw a picture of it, the unborn children is inscribed in that memorial. How ironic. You light up the tower pink and in the shadow to celebrate. We are, we're a culture in contradiction. We're a culture in contradiction. And I think, I believe, I feel convinced the answer is for the Christian people to preach the resurrection of Christ. There it is. Stay with the resurrection of Christ. He died, he rose, He's coming again, and everyone must stand before him. But when we're talking about the resurrection of Christ, we're talking about an issue that's not without. It's a measure of debate. This is a debatable subject as far as ideology goes. And sometimes when the subject of belief and unbelief come up, I would like to make a dichotomy here, and that is I would like for the sake of the discussion to separate two terms that are biblically understood Though sometimes verses can go one way or the other. And these two terms, or three terms really, is faith, which is an ideology, a sense of confidence and a belief system, versus unbelief, which is the opposite of belief, versus doubt, which is a status that exists within both faith and unbelief. And I would like to say for the subject of this discussion that faith, I mean, belief, I'm sorry, doubt, and unbelief are not the same thing. 
that unbelief is a conscientious objection of the will to the evidence that's been examined, the doubts that have been weighed, and the decision that's been made. Hence, when it comes to the subject of the resurrection, and whether or not Christ has become your personal Savior, it's accurate to say, are you a believer or an unbeliever? Because to be an unbeliever is to hold the position of unbelief, which is an act of the will. It's the end of the decision. Even if it could be rendered the decision is immature or premature, it's unbelief. Therefore, I'd like to say that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you're embracing him as your Savior, you're not an unbeliever, you're a believer. You're not an unbelief, you're in belief. But within unbelief is the world of doubt. And this is the difficulty of whether we're going to believe, be an unbeliever or be a believer. And even as a believer, the reality is, is that we're in a spiritual journey, a development where faith needs to become victorious in order for us to live the Christian life, though every single day there will be the presence of some measure of doubt. So allow me to say, therefore, that in the question of doubt, because this is doubting Thomas, isn't it? This is typically, this is doubting Thomas. And, and I put the title of my sermon, Doubting Toby, or Doubting Humanity in Reality. Because every human being has to deal with doubt, particularly everyone who wants their faith to grow. So let me dispel some things like, like you shouldn't doubt. Doubt is bad. Doubt is sin. Doubt is not spiritual. And allow me to say that to be in doubt is to be a human being. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, we get a biblical definition of faith. And therefore, I want you to go there. It is the best thing we can begin with on the subject of faith. We're going to go forward. And some of you, uh, I don't want to lose anybody on the way. Hebrews 11, now, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And this idea of, of unseen evidence and possessing what we hope all gives to us this visual image that faith is something that cannot be scientifically or materially demonstrated. Neither can doubt. Doubt's part of faith. Doubt's part of reason. But faith is an ideology. It's a sense of being convinced that something exists. Faith is something that exists within the realm often of religion. But it also exists in other realms that you and I take for granted all the time. Patriotism. Can you scientifically prove Patriotism. Can you demonstrate patriotism scientifically? Because if you look at the definition of patriotism, it is an ideology. And so is faith. How many of you feel patriotic? Are there times when your patriotism grows? Are there times when your patriotism diminishes? Are there Americans who are extremely patriotic? Are there Americans who are so unpatriotic that they would even commit sacrilege on the symbols of American patriotism? Patriotism exists whether you want to believe it or not. 
patriotism exists whether you want to engage in it or not. Patriotism dwells within the same genre of faith. There's another one. I bring this up to people when I talk to them about the resurrection. And they say, well, you have my, I have my doubts. And I say, what, what do you mean you have your doubts? Doubts are part of it. Of course you have your doubts. We can talk about your doubts. I'm asking for your belief. Are you a believer or an unbeliever? If so, then tell me the doubts that make you an unbeliever. If you're a believer, tell me how you've reconciled the doubts to make you a believer. Let me give you another example. Because sometimes people just want to say, well, I'm a man of science. Oh, okay, one of those. So you don't have any ideologies that you ever embraced. You never followed one. And if an ideology ever failed you, you would never attempt to follow it again. I think the object of love, the idea of love, is one of the biggest ideologies that exists that prove we are an ideologically based people. Because how many people in, in their existence ever hope and long for love? I'd say to you, every human being. As a matter of fact, if you look at psychology, they would say that love is one of the most basic principles of humanity in their mind. Every human being is described by the reality that they seek to obtain love and give love. But what is love? Can you scientifically prove love? Can you test love? No, you can't test love. You can't test it with laboratory. You can't document it. You're always lending it in hope that you'll receive it, that both yours and theirs is genuine. But there are times when you wonder, do I genuinely love that person? Or am I using that person? And there are times you wonder, does that person love me? Why do you? And the reality that even though some people say, I just check out of the subject of faith, I don't go there. I say, do you check out of the subject of love? No. Remarriage is the proof we don't get it, right? Divorce and remarriage in America is the proof that we will not give up on ideology. Some people say, I will give up on love, and they become reclusive, and they won't allow anyone to touch them, and they become so self-empowered that in every single culture, they never become the person that we admire. They always become the person we disdain. Would you like to have a person with the ultimate power or with the ultimate ability to do music, or the ultimate ability of any human being who didn't love anyone and wasn't loved. Man, we call people like that despots. People who become powerfully, politically, over other cultures, if they can't love children, if they can't love the weak, if they can't love their mother, if they've never been loved by a mother, if they can't love a woman, if they can't love a man, if they can't love creation, if they can't love life, feel like life has smiled on them, they can be extremely cruel and dangerous. No, we embrace the ideology of love because it's basic to humanity. And I think that if you simply step back and realize that the ideology of faith is so basic to civil humanity, you can't be civil in the world without something to believe in. We are proving that right now. So we got to take faith and put it within the same realm of an ideology such as patriotism, any political party or system, or any system we believe in that we say, I would be willing to sacrifice my life for that. And faith is one of those things. Except when we get more specific and we say, but it's faith in the resurrection. 
you say, well, what scientific proof is there for the resurrection? Again, you can't do that. You can't prove historical events with science. That's not the way science works. Question, is there reasonable legal historical evidence for the person of Jesus of Nazareth? Of course there is. It's undisputed. For the resurrection, very few intellectuals can dispute it and be honest. It's got to be explained somehow. How did that tomb get empty? And therefore, how do you have such a major faith prospering across the world, transforming entire cultures upon the idea that Jesus died, rose, and lives again? Now, you and I who are believers, we've already embraced this. If you're an unbeliever, you've got to deal with the doubts. Because ultimately, do you know what unbelief is? You know what the unbeliever is? Ultimately, the unbeliever is not somebody who has no belief. There's somebody who exchanged one belief for the other. James proved that this morning in his Sunday school lesson. When he talked about, can you prove there's a God? And we all sat there going, let's think about this. And, and Dad just said, can you prove there's not a God? See, these are ideologies. That's exactly right. So in the sense that if someone says, I don't believe, I, I do not believe there's a God, then they have to say, you have to say, well, then what do you believe? Well, I don't believe there's a God, so that's what you believe. Do you see what I'm saying? There's your faith. Sometimes, as a chaplain moving around in a way that's non-sectarian and embracing of all types of people, someone will say to me, whether the police or the fire department, and I'm there simply to be an aide and a, and, a, and a guide and a help, wherever they are in the moment, and they'll say, well, I, I, don't, I don't believe in religion. And I say, well, what do you believe? And they say, well, I, I just don't believe in anything. And I said, well, I respect your right to not believe in anything, and I respect your beliefs. Did you see how I said that? I respect your right to not believe in anything. I respect your beliefs. As a matter of fact, I believe that God respects your beliefs so much he's given you the right to hold that position. And ultimately, you have to talk to him about that. That's just my belief. So your unbelief doesn't offend me at all. i got plenty of room in my life for your unbelief. Come on and give me a big hug. You're an unbeliever of your beliefs. And I'm a believer of my beliefs. We're all operating within some realm of faith. But when we become a believer and we struggle with the subject of doubt, here's where our spiritual lives uh, frankly diminish even to the point where we become embarrassed or ashamed. The Bible clearly tells us that faith is not only of this object that we have toward God. We have this confidence in God. The object of faith is where our faith is resting. And God requires this connection from us, verse 6 of Hebrews 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, if you say, which sometimes I have, I've heard said many times, and I have expressed this, okay? Listen, I've expressed this too. I've said, God, if you are real, pull up a chair. Because if you do, I promise I'll bow a knee. I have some things I want to talk about. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever heard somebody say that? A good friend that you're attempting to talk to about your faith, and they say, if God is so real, why doesn't he just come down and reveal himself to me? Fair question. That's not an evil question. 
I bet a few of you who love the Lord have ever said, you know, Lord Jesus, this is so hard. I just wish you just would come down for the moment and embrace me. I'm not going to castigate you for such a question. I think you're a human being. I think you've expressed where human beings dwell within the struggle of wonder, of question, of why, of what's next, of uncertainty. However, I've got to state emphatically that the rules stay this. God must be approached through a system of belief. He can't be approached any other way. But that's not such a strange thing, really. Because I can say to my wife, prove to me you love me. You know what? I can be so critical of what she does next that she cannot satisfy that if I don't allow love to be what it's supposed to be. And that is a belief system. Ultimately, I've got to believe that what she does, she does because she loves me not because she's manipulating me, vice versa. And so ultimately, God says, I cannot approach him, and I cannot relate to him, and I cannot be active with him unless I engage with him first through faith. I say first through faith, because there's demonstrations in the New Testament that God hasn't set himself hard fast to the idea that he can't do something that's in the realm of sight. But you know, is seeing really believing? I've seen things a number of times going to walk away and go, did I really see that right? <laughs> Is hearing believing? I've heard things where I've walked away and thought, did I really hear that right? Do you know why? Because I'm a human being, and human beings are wrapped up within this sense of wonder. We're always saying, really? Is that right? And this is where the realm of faith works. I've said some, to some people, I said, I'm not at all offended by your doubt. Would you like me to tell you about mine, or would you like to focus on yours? I'm not at all offended by your doubt. And your doubt doesn't scare me either. As a matter of fact, if you have a doubt that I haven't had, I'd like to hear it. If you have a doubt I haven't thought of, I'd like to hear the doubt. But I bet I've heard it. Not because I've heard everything, but because I'm a human being. And human beings, we're really not that different. Doubts come and go. The reality when it comes to the subject of faith and doubt is that doubt is going to exist with faith. And therefore, I'd ask you this question. Can faith exist without doubt? I'd say to you, if there's no room for doubt, there's no room for faith. You see what I'm saying? If there's no room for doubt, there's no room for faith. The next question I'd have through with you then, if therefore doubt exists and I struggle with doubt, where should I end up? I'm hoping, I'm praying, we should end up in faith. If we struggle through doubt, we should end up with faith. And when we do, it's victorious. You see what I'm saying? Faith is not the victory because you don't doubt. Faith is the victory because you work through doubt and you trusted God anyway. You see the power that comes spiritually, emotionally, materially around you when you work through doubt and settle with trust, which is a synonym for faith, and therefore the victory is seeing what happens next. And my third question. Do I have to struggle with doubt all alone 
Or is there a God? Is there a friend? The answer, the friend is there. His name is Jesus. This is the role of Jesus, the person of Christ in our lives, to walk us through the struggle of faith where we fight with wonder and doubt. And you read about it all in the Gospels, okay? So next time you get to your Bible and you're reading the Gospels, maybe put these glasses on for a moment. I want to read how these human beings struggled through doubt to have a faith in God and how Jesus intervened into the process. And that's the Gospel story in a nutshell, in some fashion, isn't it? Hebrews chapter number 2. So when you go through Hebrews 11, you see faith exemplified as being victorious over the doubts of all the human beings in various forms of their life. They doubted, they struggled, they trusted God through the doubt and the struggle, therefore they were rendered victorious, and they are the examples as we come into 12. Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This race is what I would like to say is the struggle in the Christian life where doubt and faith are working simultaneously. Now verse 2. Here's where you really need to pay attention. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're looking unto Jesus. Do you hear that? Our eyes are on Jesus. And what is Jesus there for? He is the author and he is the finisher. An author is someone who originates the story. Whenever you write a book, if you get to ever write a book, you get to put your name on it as the author. But you know, good books have a hidden element. You know what it is? An editor. It's the editor's job to take what the author writes and to convert it into something that the readers and the audience can appreciate. So when it comes to the subject of the struggle of faith, our guide in the process is the person of Jesus, who both originates our faith, and he also edits our faith along the way. If faith, therefore, is a journey, is it's a struggle in my life, if it's something by which I'm maturing, I cannot do this without the person of Christ. I cannot have faith without Christ in a biblical God, in the New Testament form of the religion that we've been given. With that in mind, therefore, I'd like to say that Jesus has for us the elements of faith in how it fights against doubt. It's illustrated, I believe, really well in John 11. So I want you to go to John 11 so that we see both the elements and we see it illustrated and played out like I was saying. That if you went to the Gospels and you read them from this aspect, I'm going, John chapter 11, I'm going to see how a human being struggles with their doubts as to whether or not God's there, whether or not he's good, and whether or not I have hope. And I'm going to watch how Jesus intervenes himself directly into that struggle. And on the backside of it is faith, which does monumental things of victory in the life of a mortal being. And I think John 11 perfectly illustrates it. But it goes all throughout. I had a hard time narrowing it down to the illustration of John 11. Three things that must be a part of this. Three elements, therefore. Information, confession, and action. And all three of these things are the way in which we need to trust God as doubt and faith are mingling together within our minds. Information, 
I need some information. Give me information. Hence, we talk less about how we feel and more about what we've come to know. Amen? Because how I feel changes. But what I've come to know simply needs to be reaffirmed it's true. And then the change to how I feel needs to be given time to what I know. So here's something that needs to be known in John 11. The situation, uh, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, dear friends of Jesus, Lazarus dies, Jesus arrives four days later, already been buried, everything. Daughters, are, uh, sisters are still in mourning. They come to him and they said, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. But I know, even now, whatever you ask of God, he will give it. Jesus said, here's information. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says, information, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So here's the human condition. The human condition is this, death. It's traumatic. It's life-changing. I'm not trying to make light of it, but it is rather interesting, isn't it? It's life-changing. Death is life-changing. It's, it's life-altering. It's still one per person. And the ratio is 100%. With exception of one who says they rose, will not die again. Still one for him, but will not die again. So this is the condition they're dealing with. This is where they're struggling. This is their wonder. This is their doubt. This is their, un, you know, I'm not going to use the term unbelief. I want to keep that separate. This is where they shake. And Jesus comes to them and he gives them information. The information that we often need within our own work is right here within the scriptures. Hence is why we'd say, read your Bible. If you don't know where to start, start with Jesus. I think that's always the best. Then, in verse 26, or rather verse 27, she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe. End of verse 26, okay? End of verse 26, last sentence. Jesus says, believest thou this? Okay? Here's the confession. Here's the assent. And what is it? Do you believe what I've just said to you? She says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Interesting thing. That's how the Gospel of John ends, with the question of, can you believe that Jesus is who he said to be? And did the resurrection clarify this? And you say, yes, that's the confession. That's the ascent. That makes you the believer. And it shows that your doubts were worked through. But that's not where it ends. Because even as you say, here's the, here's the doubt. Here's the doubt. And here's the information. And I assent that the information is true. That's not enough. That's not enough. That is not enough. There has to be an action. There has to be an action. And it's right here in verse number 39. Well, in 38, they take Jesus to the grave. There's a stone upon it. Look at what Jesus says in 39. Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him, was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Verse 41, they take away the stone. Action. 
James reinforces this, the reality, in, in James 2, by saying, you say you have faith with your words, but faith without works is dead. I will demonstrate faith by action. Information, confession, assent, agreement, and then you've got to take action. You've got to take action. And if you don't take action, then doubt one. Doubt one, perhaps by lethargy, that you said, well, I don't know that I can. I just don't have the energy. I, I just doubt one. Not until we take action with the information we've been given and the reality that we said, this is what I believe. Now take some action. Now faith becomes victorious. But doubt will prevail if we neglect God's word because we lack information. The most solid source of information about the person of God is here, not here. Not here either, by the way. Well, you know, I just follow God according to my heart. Okay. Do we really need to document how many times your heart led you wrong? Dad's sitting home there in the easy chair and walks his little daughter. She comes in with her first love. Oh, Daddy, I love him so much. What's Dad's? Absolutely the biggest skeptic in the world. Absolutely the biggest skeptic. Follow your heart, not a trustable source. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells me that my heart is depraved and twisted, and it needs to be saved, needs to be redeemed and remade. Not a good thing to do. Best source of information, right here, the Word of God. And that's why we want to read it, if we can read it. If we can't read it, then we can listen to it. Uh, we can hear good teaching. History the stained glass windows in the cathedrals of those times of Europe when they built them was for a population that generally couldn't read. Right? They couldn't read. They came in and they read the pictures. And those were teaching them. That was the history behind these stained glass murals. They were the information source. I passed out some gospel tracts. I have no words. It's only pictures. It's kind of cool to think that you can tell people about Jesus just in pictures. You can. Information. Now ascent, confession, I embrace this, I believe this, and then action. It's changing me. It's changing what I'm doing. If we ignore the word of God, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the word of God, then we can't ignore the person of Christ either, by the way. Hebrews 12, 2, what did it say? Look to who? Looking unto Jesus. Neither can we ignore the work of the Holy Spirit in this. And how do we do that? Here. Hold up four fingers. Okay? Put up four fingers. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, allowing and permitting, moment by moment, the Holy Spirit, to work within our lives, when you come to know Christ as Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit as a gift. It's what spiritual life is. It's what being born again is. The Holy Spirit must come to you, or you're not a believer. You've not experienced the new birth. And therefore, the Holy Spirit comes to me, and I've got to cooperate with the reality 
But this is the way in which Jesus says, I'm going to abide in him, and he's going to abide in me by allowing his spirit to be active in my life. But I've got the responsibility to seek a filling. I've got the responsibility to not quench. I've got this responsibility to not grieve. I've got the responsibility to have an active walk with the Holy Spirit working in my life. This is looking unto Jesus and allowing Jesus to look unto me as the Holy Spirit is representing Christ in my life. Now, if I can't stay in the Word and I can't keep my eyes on the Lord, Jesus, and I can't allow the Holy Spirit to take control, then doubt will prevail, faith will diminish, and we won't have the victory that faith brings. Ultimately, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you pray, believing and have no doubt, you will say unto the mountain, be picked up and thrown into the midst of the sea. There's the victory. Now that's the lesson for you today. But here's something like I want to show you. I think sometimes, I'm not very good with object lessons, but I was standing at a sink with a bottle of water in my hand saying, this is not an easy concept. This is not an easy concept, this concept of faith and doubt. Because we want to look at doubt. Now, doubt, doubt has a causation, and the causation could be wrong. Let me put that out there. In other words, sin could be the causation of doubt. But so could mortality. So could death. Death could be the causation of doubt. Doubt is the status of humanity. But I would like to say to you that doubt must be worked through or there can be no room for faith. For instance, in this bottle is water, and it's just clean water, but I'd like this water to represent faith. Is there any room to put water in this bottle? There is no room to put water in this bottle. And if this is the representation of faith, it doesn't relate to me. I don't have so much faith that I couldn't have more faith. Could you? It doesn't represent me. Perhaps this represents Christ. He had no reason to doubt. He expressed doubt. Only so that I can understand, he understands me. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why did you forsake? Hey, word why, in that doubt? He inhabited, he just expressed it. He knew what was going on. So in this bottle, there's no room for faith. And that's because there's no air. But if I take a bottle where there's air, and if air is representing doubt, then now I have room for something. What do I have room for? I have room for faith, right? So if I take a bottle that has air, and this is how I am, right here, an airhead. I have, I have more air than I have water, all right? I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to struggle with you here today. I have more air than I have water. And I have a journey, and the journey is this, to know what life is like when I have more water than air. But in the process of desiring more water than air, I cannot ignore the reality that air is part of the process. Because without doubt, how am I going to have faith? If I don't have the opportunity to struggle through issues, then how am I going to work these issues through? But as I put my eyes on Jesus, as I work through the Word of God, as I allow the Holy Spirit to control me, something begins to happen. What's happening? Faith is growing, right? But what's diminishing? The air, the doubt's diminishing. So see, here's a, here's a direct correlation. That as I allow my eyes to be on Christ and my experience with Christ to prosper, because the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the person of Christ, then doubt will diminish. And as doubt diminishes, faith begins to become the ruling factor of life 
and the promises that Christ says should be mine as faith is the victory become more and more prominent in my life. But life happens, right? And so as life happens, this is what's going on with our faith. Pressure. This is just water. But uh, this is how it's working every single day of your life and mine. Here's our Christian progression. I love you, Lord, but I don't understand why. I know you don't. But can you trust me with it? I don't know if I can. Are you willing to trust me with what you don't understand? Lord, it's never been this hard before. Are you going to trust me? I'm going to trust you, Lord. And I'm going to act like I trust you too, by the way. Good. Good. See, faith has grown, doubt has diminished. I know the water is getting a little bit, but it's just water. Just think of snow on your shoes this week. But here's, so this is the state of the human soul. We put our eyes on Christ, we read the word of God, and faith increases, but immediately what begins to happen? The doubts begin to creep in. And this is what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. It's an amazing thing that this calf was to represent the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit did. When we walk in the Spirit, when we allow the Holy Spirit to do in our lives what He's supposed to do, isn't that phenomenal? I thought this bottle had a leak. Well, it does. Unless you was to change the bottle, it does have a leak. But here's the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And this is why I want the Holy Spirit to fill me. And this is why I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit with things that are unholy. And this is why I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit's doing things in my life, I don't want to say, well, I don't know that I'm ready for that. I don't know that I have time for that. This is why I want to say, God, I want to walk with you today. And that is walking in the Holy Spirit. And I'm looking to walk with you because that right there ends the struggle where it seems as though doubt is always winning and faith is always losing. Because when I allow the Holy Spirit to be in control, now, when the Holy Spirit's in control, it doesn't mean that life doesn't happen. It does. And there are times when someone will say, hey, you're not acting very spiritual. I say, I know. Pray for me. And there's times when someone may say, when was the last time you read your Bible? And I'm like, oh, I think I, uh, hold on a minute, don't ask me too quick, because now I'm feeling it, right? But when I have a walk with God that's honest and humble and the Holy Spirit's in control, then the Word of God can work and faith can be the victory. And then I can say to somebody who's in the world, who says, you know, I believe, but I have my doubts. And I can say, you know what? So do I. That hasn't changed. How could that possibly be? Usually you like such a man of faith. Because you don't understand the way faith and doubt work. Because, see, faith and doubt exist together. Because how can one exist without the other? As a matter of fact, it's, it's the very nature of humanity is for me to wonder and question. I remember when one of my little children was sitting at the table at one point in life and the conversation at the table had become quiet and this beautiful little awe-inspired little girl said to me, Daddy, how do we even know that this is real? I mean, how do we even know we're sitting at this table right now? How do we know that this isn't a dream? You know what that was? That was a little child that wondered. And that wonder within her mind was developing the thought of, is there reality or is there not reality? Believe it or not, there's some people who don't believe in reality. That's another conversation on another occasion. But she grew through that time of immaturity. She knows that we're real. 
And so we are growing through these wonders. And as we grow through these wonders, we're allowing the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the person of Christ, to increase faith so that it can be the victory. Because faith is supposed to be something in our lives that radically changes us and causes us to walk in such a different that the world says, what's different about them? And we say, what's different about me? It's Jesus. This hymn here, written uh, by Edgar Seitz and published by Ira Sankey in 1878, simply trusting every day, trusting through a stormy way, even when my faith is small, trusting Jesus, that is all. Trusting as the moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting him whate'er befall, trusting Jesus, that is all. Let's stand together. And now, our God, we thank you today that we could take time out of a day, time out of a week, and come to worship, to fellowship, to give to each other, to reflect upon you, to be experiencing your redeeming power and presence. I trust that we might go forth as ambassadors. I pray, Lord, here in our conclusion that our hearts might be filled with hope in you, faith in you, that we might know the victory that comes with such. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, first, let me speak to you, for me to you, if you're an unbeliever. You, you do not believe in the faith of Christ. Instead, you believe in something else. I want to challenge you to not be lazy with your belief system and examine how much faith it takes to believe in your belief system and what it brings to you. How much faith it takes to believe in the evidence of the resurrection and just think about what that could mean for you. This is a willful decision you make to be an unbeliever. So I'd ask you to make a willful decision to no longer be an unbeliever and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again. Welcome him into your life to save such a sinner as you and such a sinner as I. Or maybe as one who says, I'm a believer in Jesus, but my doubts seem to prevail. Take the moment. We sang the song already, I need thee, Lord Jesus, I need thee every hour. Admit to God your doubts. The nature of doubt is the weakness of our human flesh and being. And embrace the person of Christ who takes us with our doubts, frankly, and teaches us to walk in confidence of Him. Our heads are bowed for a moment. Our eyes are closed. The altar is open. Would you like to come to the altar and pray? Would you like a prayer partner? My wife would be glad to pray with you if you'd like a prayer partner. I would be glad to pray with you.